1: You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk with James Timpson, OBE, Chief Executive of the UK-wide family-run business Timpsons. We explore his unique approach to business and employment and his passion for recruiting people coming out of our prisons.
2: I'm James Timpson, and I run our family business, which is called Simpson Shoe Repairs, which is 2,000 little shops, and we also have a photo business called Snappy Snaps and Max Spielman and Johnson's are Cleaners and things like that. And I'm also really interested in prisons. with the largest employer of ex-offenders in the country, and we've got over 600 colleagues who we first met in prison, and I'm also chair of the Prison Reform Trust, so a bit of a prison nut.
1: And your company has been going for 150 years, is that right?
2: That's right. Obviously, it, I wasn't around at the time.
1: <laughs> You're ageing very well.
2: <laughs> yeah. My great-great-grandfather, um, when he was 14, left his little village in Northamptonshire and he, was, he got on a train the first time he'd ever got on a train because he was, he was going to go to Manchester because that's apparently where the jobs were. But he got on the wrong train and he ended up um, in Sheffield <laughs> where he had no money and he slept the night on the platform in Sheffield. And a very nice man saw him crying in the next morning on the platform and gave him some money to get to Manchester. And he got there and he started selling shoelaces on his bicycle, opened up some shoe shops and then some shoe repair shops. And whenever he started to make some money, he always decided because he'd been helped by someone when he was at his lowest point, he would help others when he could. And we've always tried to carry that on.
1: That's really interesting. So has that always gone I don't want you to dob in any ancestors or anything like that. (laughs) But has that always gone from generation to generation? Because obviously you're really sort of deep into the prison work and and doing that. Has it always been been the way with the generations?
2: Yeah, well, I think the only time it wasn't like that was when it stopped being a family business. And for about 20 years, it was part of a big... Public company, which then was bought back out by the family and that 's when everything really went wrong and there was no sort of philanthropic vein running through the business at all. it was just about making money um, but you know even even strange things happen so um, we have a colleague called Russ who's our company archivist amongst lots of other things, and he often sends me an email about something he 's found on eBay of you know one of my relatives who opened you know gave some money to open up a a, a, a boys' club in Manchester or gave some money to open up this and a plaque for that. So I think they've been obviously doing bits and pieces throughout a number of years, but I do know that when it was part of this public company, everything went out and that was one of them.
1: Okay. And so coming back to the prison side of life, your prison training academies, so am I right in thinking that it's 10% of your staff base have a criminal conviction?
2: That's what we know of. Right. Um, It's probably more. (laughs)
0: Probably. Um,
2: Yeah, so um, one in it's actually one in nine and a half of our colleagues we first met in prison. So that doesn't mean there are other people who joined us who have criminal convictions, Um, but these are people we actually met when they were inside prison and then they joined us. Um, So we have colleagues in all different parts of the business from our finance department to our warehouses, mostly our shops, but also we have area managers, which is a really important, um, highly paid role in our business. And we even have a director of one of our companies who I first met in prison. So um, it's worked really, really well for us. um, And it's something that we want to keep on doing, even though, you know, we're in these difficult times. It's something that's really important to us.
1: Yeah. And I think we first met each other just before you were about to set up your first prison academy. Do you remember the um, prisons minister at the time was David Hansen? Because I remember him opening one of your first
2: shops. That's right. That was in Liverpool. So... Um, I mean, there have been lots of prisons ministers, some more memorable than others. In fact, David was actually quite good. I like David. I thought he was—he uh, got things done. And what happened is I was recruiting from the prisons in the Northwest. And basically every Friday afternoon, I would just go around to one of the prisons in the Northwest. And I'd have a meeting with the governor for about 20 minutes. And then they would just take me around the wings of the prison. And I would just try and start up conversations with prisoners who look sparky, basically. And um, if they were interested in a job, I would basically give them my business card, and they would hopefully give me a ring when they're out. But one of the things I noticed is that when they showed me the workshops, and this was, you know, 15, 16 years ago, very few of them were in any way, you could any way describe as good. Most of them are terrible. And I remember going past, you know, workshops where everyone, you know, everyone was asleep or playing cards, and it was just so uninspirational. So I just said to the governor at the time, Alan Brown, said, what you know, why, why don't I just open up a workshop and I'll train people how to repair shoes and repair watches and so on he said yes but you can't train anyone to re- um, cut keys so fine I'll do anything <laughs> apart from that yeah and that's why we set the one up in Liverpool and it was a success it, it, to some extent it didn't I mean we don't have it there now because they changed the way the prison works but I think it helped change the culture of prison industries a little bit it helped us find a lot of really good people but it proved that you can do things differently. You know, they all wore our uniform every day. Yeah. Um, prison officers came in at lunchtime and it was like a little shop. So they would come in and get their shoes repaired and so on.
1: Exactly. And it was very obvious you were in a sort of Timpson place. And actually it's really important that men and women and children, if they're in workshops and learning something, that actually there's a quality to it and it's a place they want to be and it's a place that they feel proud to be as well, actually.
2: Yeah so we did things like we bought blinds to cover the windows so you couldn't see the bars mm. and we took all the prison signs down I and mean, we had to have our shadow boards for because we have knives and, hangar, and hammers and all this sort of stuff in there um, but no it didn't feel like you were walking into a prison when you were there.
1: Yeah and how many prison training academies do you have now?
2: Okay, so we've got uh, three at Thorncross, which is in Warrington, an open prison. We've got one in Newhall in Wakefield, a women's prison. One in Downview, another women's prison in South London. We got a um, like a production workshop in White Moor, so sort of Cambridge Way. And we used to have one at Blantyre House, but they closed the prison, so we moved it to like basically an industrial unit where we train men and women who come out on day release from the various prisons around in this sort of the Kent cluster. Yeah. So that's what we've got now.
1: And your attention rate, I see, is 75%. Um, so the people you recruit out of prison into your organisation, into your company, 75% of them stay, which is really high.
2: Yeah, I think because there are probably a number of reasons. One is we, re- we generally recruit quite mature people who've got to the stage where they just want a normal job. And, um, you know, we offer that. Um, Also that it's difficult to get a job when you've got a criminal record and there are very few companies that openly recruit people like that. So they don't have as many options, so it's probably more of an incentive for them to stay. Yeah. Um, But also, you know, we're quite good at picking good people and they're successful, they get promoted quickly and they start earning good money and they're happy and they meet new friends as colleagues and so it all seems to sort of work, not all the time, but it never works all the time anyway, Yeah. but um, yeah, it seems to work
1: can you talk us through the process of before you decided to start recruiting from prisons and thinking right okay i'm gonna have to do a bit of work maybe with you know the existing staff that i have and maybe tackle some you know hr issues how did you go about that because you know i think there'll be a lot of people listening who'd probably be like oh i'd like to do that but it would never fly in my organization because people have certain views
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it does help that it's a private business and, um, you know, I'm not on the stock exchange or anything like that, so we can sort of do what we want. Uh, But I recruited about 10 or 12 men from the Northwest prisons before I told anybody what I was doing. And I had an area manager's conference, remember, in Frodsham, not too far from where we live. And um, I sort of told everyone, I said, we just want to let you know, over the last four or five months, I've been recruiting these people from prison, da-da-da, and explained who they were. And the reaction was, you know, I was worried that they would say, oh my God, you can't do this. You know, you're employing armed robbers and burglars and you're cutting keys. You know, it's ridiculous. What are you doing? But the reaction was, one, these people you recruited are actually very good, apart from one who we had a nightmare with. (laughs) If they're that good, why did not we go and get some more? And then afterwards, sort of often, you know, two or three days afterwards, I got a few of them, a few of my area managers. These are, you know, senior colleagues I've worked with for a long time, saying that, you know, I'm really pleased that this is happening because... When I first joined you, I had to lie on my application form because, you know, misdemeanors, you know, nothing serious, but it had been on their conscience all the time that they'd had to lie on their application form to get a job because they had a criminal conviction. Mm. So it's sort of, the leaders bought into it because I got good people and they saw the commercial sense in what I was doing.
1: Right. So there is a commercial sense, you know, it's, it's of course, altruistic on the one hand But of course, you want to make money and you want to make profit, right? Because that's what business men and women do.
2: Exactly. It wouldn't work if I employed people who were unreliable, not good at serving customers, and not good at taking money and putting money in the till. Uh, We've got to make money and everybody's got to be accountable. A lot of our shops are just run by one colleague on their own. So you can't hide behind anybody. You've got to deliver all the time. And uh, yeah, you know, one of the reasons why people from prison who've joined us leave... Is because they don't cut the mustard, uh, but that's the same as people who joined us join us through other, through other places you know you, you've got to be able i mean I, I judge people on their performance and their kindness rather than their past.
1: yeah, you once said to me <laughs> i'll never forget and excuse my friendship, but you said, and you might have it might have been in articles you've written, um, you know you can 't polish a turd, but actually, I think maybe you can and maybe you do. What, what, what's your sort of view on that?
2: Well, what my view is, is that I'm looking for people who have a certain kind of personality. And I don't think you can change someone's personality. I want people who, you know, I can, tra- I can train you to repair a watch in three or four days. I can re- I can train you to cut keys in about six weeks. I can repair you. I can train you to repair shoes in about a year. But I can't change your personality. And what I'm looking for is personality. So people in prison I come across are often very sparky, bright, often... Had trouble at school, often dyslexic or ADHD or whatever. Um, You know, we've got um, one of of my colleagues who I first met in prison. She was famous uh, in Newhall Prison for her OCD. Well, OCD is brilliant for us because I want people who like tidy shops. (laughs) So, so, so when I say that you can't change people, you can't change people's personalities, but you can give people opportunities to be who they are and be who they want to be, and that's what I think giving someone a job who has been in prison. If you pick the right people at the right time, that's what you give them. And people just want to be successful. And that feeling of success often takes time for people to be comfortable with when they leave prison because they've had so much disappointment in their lives. Yeah, um, And that's what we try and manage as well.
1: And the other thing about recruiting from prison is that um, you get... A sort of an idea of how people have behaved to a certain extent over the last year or however long their sentence have been, don't you? You would get much more information, I presume, than you would recruiting someone off the street.
2: Oh, completely. I mean, if you filled out an application form to come and work in our business now, yeah, if I'm honest, I wouldn't check it. Yeah. I mean, most CVs are really pure fantasy. And for <laughs> us, the, the only point of a CV is what's your name and what's your phone number because I just want to chat to you to work out what your personality is. We don't even look at all your qualifications the way you work, We're not interested. But when you when you recruit someone from prison, you get every piece of information and it is correct. So there's no hiding. And one of the things that we try and do when we when we interview someone in prison is just to to ask to give them that opportunity to tell us what happened. And it's the way they tell us gives us a really good indication of whether they're ready for a job with us.
1: Right. And have you had, and I'm sure you have over the years, people who just haven't been able to accept the crime that someone might have committed because of maybe even personal things that have happened to them?
2: Yeah, so I have a colleague um, who, who's worked for us for a long, long time. And when I, when I first announced what we were doing, he said, he phoned me up and said, listen, just, you know, hope you don't take this personally, but I will not work with anybody who has been to prison because my son was murdered
1: mm. and...
2: So completely accept, understand that absolutely fine. Um, we also don't recruit sex offenders because, for two reasons, well, a number of reasons. One is my colleagues don't want to work alongside sex offenders. That's just what they tell me. They're happy to work work alongside people who've committed murder and uh, you know um, drug dealing and so on, so on. Um, but also we take photos. Uh, we do photo ID of adults and children, and we just didn't feel it was appropriate at all. So we are selective.
1: Yeah. But you never had anyone who sort of like walked out kind of going, this is ridiculous, I don't want to work for Timpsons anymore?
2: We've had some bad press. Uh, The worst headline I had was in the Belfast Evening (laughs) Telegraph, which was killer cobbler cuts keys <laughs> oh, which is pretty damning i thought not good for the brand yeah and we have sort of you know lag lag cobbler and that sort of stuff we had one guy we i recruited from liverpool prison very sparky guy and he was running one of our shops um not too far from the office here in cheshire and he, he didn't just steal the money he punched a customer and, and, and threatened to burn down the shop
1: oh wow
2: But that was sort of an extreme one, but it didn't put me off because so many of the people who recruit from prison, you know, they're probably better and just as good as anybody else who we recruit. Yeah. And, you know, as you say before, I'm commercial. I want, you know, I want people who can take money and serve customers.
1: Yeah. And so much of all of this is sort of wrapped up in the culture, isn't it? Which is something I'm obviously fascinated in too within prisons and good cultures and bad cultures, toxic cultures, And you have something called Upside Down Management at Timpsons. What exactly is that?
2: Okay, so Upside Down Management is our way of running the business basically through trust and kindness. We trust people to make decisions based on what they think is the best interest of themselves, colleagues and customers. And we only have two rules. You put the money in the till and you look the part. Basically, the shop looks nice and tidy, you look nice and tidy, and you're pleasant, and you don't have the radio blaring out, and you don't eat your sandwich in front of customers. So you can decide to do whatever you want, order whatever stock you want, charge, you know, if you want to give discounts, give discounts, paint the shop pink, I don't mind. But I trust you to run the shop, and I trust you to use your initiative to come up with ideas, try new things, and make sure customers are happy. So the culture it, you know, all culture change takes a long time. But what amazes me about prisons is how a culture can differ so much depending on who the leader, i.e. the governor is.
1: Yeah, and you've seen the good, the bad, the ugly, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, what, what amazes me is is that, you know, a Cate prison in Durham is the same as a Cate prison in London. They basically, they do the same thing. They look the same. They have the same kind of prisoners there. They eat the same food. They have the same workshops. They have the same visitors but the culture can be so different based on one person. It's a bit like a football team, a premiership football team. You know, how their success can vary so quickly with the same players on the pitch, with the same fans, depending on who that leader is. Mm. And prisons are, for some reason, just like that. So you can you can have a prison where very, very successful, going really well, um, you know, self-harming, low. Drug testing, low. reoffending low. And then... You have a change in leadership, and within six months, all the indices are going the wrong way. And that's what really worries me. In some ways, it's a bit like a school, but I think prisons are more of an extreme version. And it is down to culture and leadership.
1: Yeah and I've always been really fascinated at how more contagious bad cultures are compared to the good cultures and in every prison you'll have a little bit of both to differing degrees but where there's sort of you know a bad culture that does tend to spread I find more easily than the good cultures. Because obviously within one small thing in my organisation, you know, it's a lot of the work that we do. And once you start building up a group of people that can rally around a set of values and a, and a sort of a way of doing things that's better, then obviously it's great because you sort of think, well, I can either be with uh, the bad culture or or now I can move across to this different type of culture that seems to be bubbling up within the prison.
2: I mean, one of the things that amazes me about prison leadership is how... Quickly, most governors are moved around. So, there are some examples of prisons where the governors have been there for a long time, and they are generally the most successful prisons we have, successfully run prisons we have. But what I would like to see is if you're appointed to be a governor of your nearest prison on the Isle of Wight, Edwina, then <laughs> you'd be appointed to a four year term minimum, um, with the option at year three to extend it to a total of seven years. Because so I remember reading and some research about a head teacher is. the the most effective point when they should leave is after seven years. That's when they've really delivered the culture and they're probably ready to move on. So I would like prison governors to actually live in the communities that they're serving and to get fully engrossed rather than just waiting for the next job to come along or if things aren't working out, just get bumped off back to uh, Petit France, the head office in London. Um, Because I, I just think culture change takes so long and it's so complex that you need the leaders to be there to be able to drive it through and to be accountable for it.
1: Well, exactly. Imagine if you had a CEO that was changing every two or three years or a headmaster or a headmistress changing every two or three years, you'd know that that school or that organisation was in absolute dire straits. There'd be something exceptionally wrong going on if that was the norm. But for some reason, it just is uh, acceptable in the prison system. And I've always found that deeply worrying.
2: Yeah, it needs to change.
1: It does. But then, but then I suppose, compared to the prisons ministers, I think we were sort of up to almost six, weren't we, within a year this year. But anyway.
2: Yeah, I think we've had more housing ministers than prisons ministers, but it's not far off.
1: I know it's like when people say to me, why do you know so many MPs? I'm like, because there's been so many prison ministers. I <laughs> worked in the system for about 20 years. That's a lot of politicians you get to meet. But moving on slightly from that then, as a company... As a whole, is there a particular legacy that you want to leave behind?
2: Well, I'm really proud of what we've done, recruiting people from prison. And we recruit people from other walks of life and other challenges. But I think it's made our company a kinder place. I think it's made it more interesting. I think, bizarrely, and this was never the intention, we have more customers who come and shop with us because of what we do, rather than who try and avoid us because of what we do. From a legacy perspective, I think, really, what, what I've managed to achieve and obviously, I've got lots of colleagues who help me with this, is that when I go around the shops and I meet someone who's been to prison, who we recruited, and then they tell me about their new partner, they, they're getting married and they've got kids now, and they got them, themselves a, a car and they found a flat. To me, that is the biggest achievement of everything, rather than making money. I mean, making money is just a byproduct of running a good business. Yeah. But, but the, um, the way you can help people be the best they can be to me is the legacy that I would like because it's so powerful.
1: And do you have a sort of alumni when people move on from Timpsons? Are they always part of, you know, the, the Timpson network, if you like?
2: They're always part of the Timpson family. We've had some of our colleagues who we've joined from prison who've gone on to, you know, qu- highly paid jobs elsewhere and a few who sadly failed and are probably back inside now. But, um, yeah, once you're part of the Timpson family and you sort of experienced our culture then I like to think it stays with you a long time.
1: I mean, obviously, recruiting from prisons has been a really positive thing for you. But as you said earlier, you're passionate about prisons. You've got the bug like I have, and it's kind of a way of life to a certain extent. Would you say to other companies that were sort of keen to do it, yes, definitely, you know, you should? Or would it be like, well, it's not for everybody?
2: If you're going to do it well, it's one of the best things you can do because you get great people. But you need to be careful that you don't just see it as a short-term thing i mean it always worries me when i meet a chief executive you'll, you'll have come across this before and they go this is a great idea we should be doing this i'll ask one of my hr team to uh, speak to you and get it sorted it's not it's not about getting it sorted yeah it, it will never work i don't even bother then i have a colleague called darren um who you've met who basically spends a lot of time with other companies helping them recruit um, taking them into prisons holding their hands doing the interviews guiding them about who the best people to take on and so on and that's been a really good way of helping other companies get going but there are certain businesses where it's difficult you know financial services difficult um, because of all the regulation the fsa regulations i, I, I would love uh, parliament to employ ex-offenders i'd love the police to employ more ex-offenders
1: i think parliament probably do have <laughs> quite a lot of ex-offenders in there don't they
2: well that's true in the house of Lords i <laughs> I met, met most of them, I think.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you would be a big advocate, but I think what you're saying is it's entirely down to the buy-in of the sort of top leadership, right?
2: Completely. And it has to be something that fits in with the business because you want people to be successful and successful for you. And if if you don't have those two things, it doesn't work.
1: Yeah. And I imagine you need quite a big dose of emotional intelligence as well because managing people effectively and being kind but firm with your managerial skills can also be quite difficult and I think there's probably quite a lot of leaders out there that just can't do that.
2: Yeah I mean a lot of people don't like having difficult conversations and it's something you sort of have to learn to do a bit Um, and with people who've had lots of time in prison some of our long-serving colleagues from prison you need, you need to know how to handle some of the difficult conversations with them so they don't take it the wrong way. For example, we employ lots of people who have got a life licence, so they're terrified of doing anything wrong. They're terrified of turning up at the shop late that, and because they could go back to prison. So you need to understand how you manage people who've, who've had a difficult past because some people find it absolutely fine and other, and other people find authority difficult find rules difficult um and others are just desperate for guidance so you've got to you're right that emotional intelligence you've got to try and get it right and you know i don't always get it right but we try
1: yeah and before we wrap up i just wanted to quickly ask how your training academies have been affected with covid19 in the last few months
2: simple answer they're closed right but we have had a really good experience with the prison industries um they've been excellent we've got one of our training academies reopening in thorncross but without any um inmates so just just my colleagues in there and they this where we do complicated shoe repairs so that's all opening up and they've been really really helpful Um, but it does concern me how long it's going to take to get everything back up and running again because we had so many great people who were training with us And I worry we'll sort of lose them in the system. Maybe their sentences are over, they've gone home. Yeah. And communication has been difficult. But, you know, I've heard a number of really good reports, actually, about prison officer, prisoner relationships during the lockdown, how things have improved a lot. But I also worry that, you know, when people banged up for 23 hours a day, how are they going to get the training and relationships and so on?
1: Exactly. I I sort of feel the same. You know, it's great that they're doing so well, but um, we need to be careful not to be sort of patting ourselves on the back and saying, aren't aren't we doing such a good job when we know that actually the self-harm rates, certainly in the women's prisons, are rising. And, you know, there's lots of children in prison as well. And the idea that you can keep children locked up for 23 hours a day without it going terribly, terribly wrong is just, it just doesn't work like that, does it?
2: No. And, you know, I think if there's a big difference between weeks on end in a well-run prison in a cell on your own or with in a badly run prison sharing a cell with someone who's got serious mental health issues who you don't get along with um, when you can't speak to your family and you don't have a TV. is difficult.
1: Exactly. And sort of thinking of all those children that aren't getting to see their mothers or fathers, um, you know... Some tragic things going on, sadly.
2: But I've heard some good reports, though, of um, video conferencing coming in so people can FaceTime families and things like that. So I think there has been a good effort on that, which I hope continues even after all this is over. But that family relationship is absolutely vital. You've got to invest in that all the time.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, James, thank you so much for talking to me today. And um, good luck with the rest of it.
2: Thanks a lot. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that